Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. Get along down the road. We got a long, long way to go. Scared to live, scared to die. We ain't perfect, but we try. Get along while we can't always give love the upper hand. Alright, Brendan, here we are, February 23rd. It's 10:20 p.m. A school night, but uh, but the people need some content. So, so what are we talking about this week? Yeah, the things we do for the listeners, Ricky. <laughs> I will say people did text me today asking like where the episode was, which I really appreciated that people are actually counting on it. And credit to us over the last like month or so, we've done a good job of getting it out like every Tuesday. So we were a little, we are a little late in recording it this episode this week. Uh, it's been a busy couple of days for us, particularly for you. And we'll get into why later actually. Uh, but this week on the episode, we'll we'll run through a few like quick hit things from the news over the past couple of weeks. So obviously last week's episode was a presidential draft, which we both had a ton of fun doing. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback uh, around that episode. So uh, again, we appreciate all of the people that have reached out um, and engaged with us around that episode. Um, but it's been a little while since we've tackled some things in the news and most prominently it's um, the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump and, and then some some smaller things that we'll get into. But uh, the deep dive in the episode is going to be on the situation that's occurred and is still occurring in, in Texas over this past you know week. Um, and like I said, continue to occur uh, through this week. Uh, but before we get into all that, uh, we do want to remind people that this program is sponsored by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. Uh, they're building high-end handcrafted custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. Uh, it's Canon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram. If you follow us on Instagram, we tagged them uh, in our post last week. Um, so hopefully you guys uh, check check them out as well. You can So again, on Instagram or visit them online at cannonhillwood.com. Uh, the guys at Cannon Hill would want to remind you that you can't have a round table discussion without a round table. Oh, that's a good one. That is a good one. If you if you do, um, go check them out. Uh, let let them know that the guys over at Gentlemen's Disagreement sent you. Uh, but all right, let's get into the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump, which it's almost hard to believe that it happened. It just seemed to be like, I don't know, kind of in and out and, and gone. And now it seems like a long time ago. It's, I don't know, I continue to marvel at the news cycle these days that how historic it really was that the first, only the fourth impeachment trial in, in in presidential history, the first time any president has been impeached twice, the first president to have been impeached, to have the impeachment trial take place while he's out of office, like huge historical implications. And one of the things that will go down in the history books, I believe, as huge, a huge event in the, at the beginning of 2020, at the end of 2020, be 2021. Uh, but it, it just, it's, it just, pass by like any other news cycle these days. So do, what, what are your thoughts on, you know, now that it's passed, do you have any reflections on it? Yeah. I mean, it was almost the, like the huge event that, that wasn't right. Like just like the huge event that wasn't, it was, um, as you said, it, it came and went, I think part of what are part of what, what happened that's kind of like frustrating about it. Right. Is just that, like the the outcome was predetermined it was 
you know, I like, I don't know if, if you call it a farce, is that going too far, but you had, you had guys uh, like who are supposed to be the jurors, like senators talking to the defense team and saying like, you know, whatever the thing's over anyways, you just got to like say some things and we're going to quit. And, and that, and that's just what it is. And I don't know. I guess if I have any reflections on it, it's like, all right, so we did get seven Republicans to uh, vote um, to convict or vote to impeach, I guess. Um, All of whom had really nothing on the line. Basically anybody who feared even in the slightest bit, some retribution from Trump in the form of a primary challenge or something down the road politically said like, "Uh -uh, I'm not touching that. And I guess at the end of the day, um, maybe a little bit of surprise, uh, but but also maybe not. I don't know. What are you thinking? Yeah, I, I agree with your point that it's frustrating that everyone or the vast majority of jurors, theoretically impartial jurors, had their minds made up before the trial even started. And some some of it I understand certainly more than the Ukraine trial, where I believe that there had to be actual like discovery in that trial because people weren't exactly sure what had happened. In this situation, more or less, everyone knew what had happened. And for the hundred senators, like they lived that experience. So I understand to some extent many of them having their minds, you know, pretty made up. It, it's a reason why in normal trials we don't let jurors sit on juries that already know like about the case let alone we're like victims in the case. Exactly. Right. So I, I think you can, you can make those, that criticism both ways. I personally, I, I believe that he was guilt. Trump was guilty of uh, the charges levied against him. And so in that sense, I don't like fault as much the 50 democratic senators that voted to convict him mostly because I agree with them. But I, I do think if we're going to criticize senators for having their minds made up, I didn't hear one Democrat waffle at all or say that, hey, I'm going to wait and listen to the evidence that comes out. Right. Like their minds were all made up, too. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that that's a fair point. I mean, but I guess to your earlier point, it is their minds were made up because, you know, the evidence kind of speaks for itself in this case. I think there was, I guess, a little more to do. I was surprised about the you know, what was the contents of the speech that he gave before the storming of the Capitol as if that was like an isolated incident that could have in and of itself precipitated it. And so there was like some, you know, uh, evidentiary on, on both sides trying to say, well, like here, here's the word that he used that led to it. And then on the other side, well, it couldn't have done it. And, and that for me was a little bit surprising because as we both know, it, it wasn't that, that made, that was like the, you know, the straw maybe that broke the camel's back. But even without that, had people stormed the Capitol, I would have still said, well, I mean, well, you know why they did that (laughs) still falls at Donald Trump's feet, whether or not he was there on the day, like trying to get people into a frenzy in my, I mean, I don't even sure if that's opinion necessarily. I think that's almost self-evident here. Right. It would, it would have been a weaker case without the speech, but uh, the, the speech certainly made the case a lot stronger. Um, so I, I want to go back to something that you said earlier, though, and that was about how seven Republicans voted with the Democrats to convict and, and impeach President Trump. And while it might be kind of easy to like poo-poo their votes and they knew that he wasn't going to actually be impeached because 
no, they didn't have the votes and many of them are not facing uh, re-election for several years. I, I do think we have to give those people credit and it, it does take guts to vote your conscience and go against the vast majority of your party and, and your party's leader and that you know that tens of millions of people still in this country and in your party support. So I just want to run through those people. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, Ben Sass, and Pat Toomey. Uh, all of those, those five were expected. Uh, they've been pretty consistent about their reactions to Trump, certainly uh, in the last few months, if not the last few years, and their five votes were expected. I want to give particular shout outs though to Bill Cassidy from Louisiana and Richard Burr from North Carolina. Uh, those two votes were unexpected. And I just want to go through that reasoning a little bit. Cassidy was someone that really seemed to be struggling and he was interviewed in the middle of the trial and he said, I took an oath to uphold the constitution. A constitutional conservative takes that oath seriously. So if I'm here to uphold the constitution, I'm upholding it, I'm doing my job. And as you know, Louisiana is not, is very much Donald Trump territory. So while he doesn't face uh, an election for several years, it's, it felt like he actually did his job. He showed up and listened to the trial, listened to the evidence that was presented and decided that ultimately Donald Trump was guilty. And, and he says uh, as much, he said at, after he voted to convict or to impeach, he said, I did not make this decision lightly, but I believe it is necessary. When this process started, I believed it was unconstitutional to impeach a president who was no longer in office. I still believe that to be the case. However, the Senate is an institution based on precedent and given that the majority in the Senate voted to proceed with this trial, the question of constitutionality is now established precedent. He said he listened to both arguments from both sides and the facts are clear. The evidence is compelling, he said, that President Trump is guilty of inciting an insurrection against a co-equal branch of government and that the charge rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors. So again, just to kind of emphasize the point, I, I thought like that's what I would want every senator to have shown up and done last week. Yeah, I... I, I I feel like I hesitate to give and and Cassidy was one if correct me if I'm wrong who was recently reelected so he's got like six years right now to to hope that, that something happens to the Republican Party or it just gets worse in which case maybe he's okay bowing out for the, for the future but yeah I mean I I think it's fair I, it. it I mean, you didn't hear a ton of like vociferous defense of the president. Like it was absolutely not. It was kind of like, you know, a few, I think it's unconstitutional. I think that was Mitch McConnell's line, which again, I think Cassidy actually does a, has a pretty good rebuttal to that. In fact, it's, it's sort of settled. I, I, uh, it's, I, I get, I guess the more disheartening thing is, is one like what does that say about our system of justice if if some of our like the people that we hold in the highest esteem can't actually do what we ask like everyday people to do and you know perhaps that there there is something to be said more broadly about that and then just like almost sadly that there there is really going to be no accountability for this, he's still got the grip on the party that he has, which is obvious. And it's like, it's just, it's kind of just sad, I guess. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I got a couple more things to touch on there. One, again, to give a shout out to Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, she is up for election next year. And while she remains popular in Alaska, this is not a particularly popular stance. So 
she was the one with the most on the line and as usual stuck to her convention convictions and yeah. in, in, in choosing to impeach. Uh, but, ah, but she's actually a good one to bring up. And this is one that I've f- sort of forgot about. Why can she do that in Alaska? So they have ranked choice voting in Alaska. She's not worried necessarily about the normal Republican primary challenge. And they have ranked choice, trans, ranked choice voting in Alaska because she, or maybe not because, but it coincided with um, a previous election that she did lose a primary as a, as a candidate and then came back as an independent and ended up winning the, uh, the general. So the takeaway there is? Ranked choice voting, baby. We've been saying it for months. This podcast has been, we're on the record on that one. I know. <laughs> All right. uh, but to step back and build off your point of like the lack of accountability here. So after the trial was over, there was a, a morning consult poll that was conducted. And while Trump's overall favorability ranking is 34%, 81% of Republicans gave him positive marks. And if you looked at uh, candidates for 2024, the Republican uh, presidential candidate, President Trump got 53% of Republicans said they would vote for Trump if the primary were held today. All other Republican hopefuls were polling in the low single digits besides Mike Pence who received 12. So anybody you can think of, Rubio, Cotton, Romney, Hogan, Hawley, Cruz, Scott, all polled, all polled below five. The only other two people that polled at six, Nikki Haley and Donald Trump Jr. Yeah, Lord help the Republican Party. I don't know who's going to save you now. Right. And so that's the thing. And while you mentioned McConnell earlier, not a number of Republicans were able to hide behind the constitutionality argument, uh, but they're in terms of voting to, to acquit President Trump. But McConnell at the end, he gave really a blistering speech against Trump in order, you know, he's clearly trying to move the Republican Party forward, but also doesn't want to alienate the, the Trump voters. It's, he's doing the same thing that Kevin McCarthy is doing to some extent, although McCarthy has been more pro-Trump in, in, the, in the House of trying to keep that tent as big as possible heading towards 2022 and 2024. But as I said, you know, weeks, months ago, that ultimately that that's disappointing because there is no accountability and there's no exorcism of Trump that's coming from the Republican party anytime soon. Yeah. Right. And I, and I, and I guess that that is potentially just like another one of those questions that you have to ask, like it is always important to, find new ways to kind of engender your platform to more people, as you said, getting the tent bigger. But at the same time, like you got to ask yourself, like, how am I getting these people into the tent? And, and if it's, if it's in false pretenses, cause I don't really believe some of these things that we say, like, as we've said, no longer thinly veiled, just like blatantly, um, blatantly racist or, or, or what have you, like, are those, is that the right way to grow the tent? And if not, you know, what are we going to do? And, and, and I think you've mentioned this before, like there are uh, groups of people who kind of de facto vote Democrat for, for years that have actually, you know, sounded more and more like traditional Republicans and not you know, religious conservatives, whatever, um, and and not what we hear from the kind of the Trump platform. There seems like there could be other ways to grow the tent than to just uh, like appeal to, I don't mean, I don't even know. I don't have the right words for it, but like, 
I think you know, I think you know what I mean. <laughs> right. You've mentioned this before, how European parliamentary democracies have multi-party systems. And I was reading some article this week that was saying that the two-party system in the United States is broken for a million reasons, which we've discussed at length here. But one of the chief reasons at this point is that the Republican Party in the United States is really equivalent to a European far-right party. And while those normally in countries, say, like Germany or France, like those parties exist, they tend to hold, say, 20% of the of the populace and 20% of the representatives, which is fine. Like, I don't want to exercise those, those viewpoints from our society. I mean, I'm not talking about QAnon, like conspiracies. I do want to ideally exercise those conspiracy beliefs, but like the, the kind of far right religious conservatives, like there's, there are legitimate beliefs in that. Uh, but if it's one thing to hold 20% of the representatives, it's a different thing to hold essentially 50% of the representatives. And, and that's a big issue right now. Yeah. Right. And just, sorry, just a further like bang on that point, Gallup conducted a poll last week and it said 62% of adults say that the parties do such a poor job of representing the American people that a third party is needed. And, and this is most striking, while 70% of independents thought that, which is like just people like me and you being like, duh, obviously, 63% of Republicans also said that a third party was needed. That's up from 40% at the end of last year. Yeah, and it's, but it's, it's just one of those things that like, even though we've had parties kind of change hands and even, you know, Democrats and Republicans kind of flipping platforms are really, I don't know if demographics is the, is the right word, but um, we, we have had sort of an evolution of the political system over the last 200 plus years. Certainly there's still just this like feeling that two more than two parties are, it's just not going to exist. And that, and, and that's, um, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's problematic as as we've said, you know, in part because of the primary system, in part just because of how how we do things, but um, you know, to give to give that example or build on that example for for either, you know, Canada or many European parliamentary democracies, it usually becomes uh, some type of coalition of parties uh, which which also like really helps um, a more representative democracy in that you don't have to vote for a candidate that you don't believe in like 50% of the things just because they hold, you know, they, they're calling themselves Democrats or Republicans. You can actually get someone who's like, you know, more representative of how you feel. Yeah. It seems like we keep ending up in the same places. Uh, all right, let's talk about something different. So two politicians have also been in the news over the past couple of weeks for, not great reason. So Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, has been in the news for his role in essentially covering up the number of deaths that occurred in New York in, in nursing homes in particular due to the coronavirus. Um, and Ted Cruz has been in the news for jetting off to Cancun in the middle of the disaster in Texas last week. Uh, which of those would you like to tackle first? Um, let's start with Cuomo. I think I think that the Cuomo situation is um, is interesting to me as like a kind of a follow on to the Trump discussion. I think you'll have a, a lot of takeaways on on this um, in particular, because like I feel like there haven't been as many like Democratic sort of, you know, punching bags in the way that 
that we continuously are able to like find new things that Trump is doing crazy that we can sort of, you know, pull that up and, and use him as an emblematic of the Republican party and say, uh, say whatever we want to say. I think, I think there's, there's something there for you. Um, what I'll say, which is actually heartening for me is that, um, a lot of these charges were brought by a democratic attorney general. Um, it was a pretty bipartisan, uh, rebuke from both Democrats and Republicans in the state of New York, a state that is heavily, um, held by Democrats. You know, they have, uh, the state legislature, obviously the governor, the mayor is a Democrat of New York city. Um, and so there is kind of a degree I I'm, I'm hopeful of accountability within the own, within one's own party, which if I'm going to use this as a backhand way to criticize Republicans is a lot of what we lacked um, under the Trump administration. Um, so I will, I'll pause there and, and hand it back to you. Yeah. I, I hope that accountability continues from, from the legislature. I hope it continues and I hope to see more of it in the media. You know, Cuomo was held up as really the golden boy of, for large uh, portions of the summer in terms of New York's handling of the coronavirus. And no doubt he did a lot of good things, but as time has gone on, it's clear that he didn't handle everything as well as, as he was held up. And I, it just feels like the national media in particular, whether it's because you know he was on CNN with his brother or The Daily Show, right? It's like all of these kind of things, he was such like a likable guy and he's kind of charismatic and he was out giving speeches when other leaders in our country weren't and uh, is still kind of young and has a good presence about him. It seemed like everyone was worshiping this guy and comparing him quite favorably to people like Ron DeSantis, the governor down in Florida. And if we kind of compare results almost a year later, Cuomo's record doesn't stand up as, as well as people were praising it in the summer. And certainly like this, this cover up is, is not great. Uh, and while it, I, I think the real problem is that he was using this cover-up to to make himself look better, so that he could run on this essentially falsified record of of achievement during this time and parlay it into a fourth term as governor of New York, which has never been done before. So to use to to use like his aides and to manipulate numbers in the press in order to further his political standing is frustrating to me. I'm very glad to your point that he's being held to account in the New York legislature. I, I I wish I had seen or will see more in the media the same sources that were all over him praising him a few months ago. You, you got to be equal here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's fair. I, I also like the fact that he would just go on CNN and have like a hangout session with Chris Cuomo, like whatever you, whatever you, whatever your feelings on uh, that were, I, it's, it's just, that's not how journalism is supposed to be. <laughs> You're just not supposed to, that's, that should never be like that. And honestly, you know, if I, if I am a Trump supporter, I see something like that and I'm like, come on, like, this is like the height of just like narcissistic nepotism and just all, all kinds of nonsense. And I, and quite frankly, another reason that I'm not a huge fan of CNN either, but um, yeah, I, and I, I think some of the other interesting stuff that is coming out is that that this is kind of how Cuomo like runs his administration. He's like a big bad bully over there. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the same ways that, that Trump was successful in 
I don't think people are really counting him out to be a fourth term governor because of something like this. Right. Like, oh, no. yeah. Like, yeah, it, it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting comparison. Uh, and he's, he got that kind of Teflon quality to him. Like Trump, Trump does as well. Like there, to your point, like there was a New York assemblyman that said that Cuomo called him and said that he would destroy him. Like, like that he, like he called him at his home and said that he threatened his career if he didn't assist with the cover up that was un, un, undergoing. Like it was right. it's like, Wow, it's like old, kind of like old school politics, like that dirty politics that uh, you don't you don't like to see. Yeah, you you don't like to see it, but I think it is interesting, especially in kind of the American context where we love to think of people as sort of freedom loving and free thinking, but there is a little bit of this gravitation towards people who kind of just like tell you what to do. And like, it's a little more than just tell, tell you how it is. It's, it's really like, I'm, I'm kind of going to rule this thing with an iron fist. Everyone's going to march to the beat of my drum here. And, and there is, you know, a not insignificant portion of the population who, whether or not they would admit it seems to, to uh, admire those qualities. Absolutely. And it, there's a reason that we've had strong men throughout like human society, right? And it, well, certainly not, it's not like Putin is running a democratic government over there, but there's a reason why he does have appeal or like um, Erdogan in Turkey or um, who's the Hungarian guy, like or Orbov or Orbachev, or something like that. Yeah. Trump's another guy, yeah. Cuomo's another guy like that, though. There is something about it where like a strong man, particularly in times of crisis, whether it was this you know, American crisis in 2016, quote unquote crisis, or, or the, an actual crisis like the coronavirus, where you, you kind of seed things. And that, that's the dangerous part about government, to be sure, right? Like you give up a lot of power to people that um, are eager to abuse it. Yeah. And, and that is also like, if you like enough of what the person is doing, then you kind of excuse the methods yep. that they use. Yep. And, and I think it's important to recognize, you know, that, while we want, you know, especially Democrats or, or, or left-leaning liberals want to call that out every step of the way when, when Trump was doing it, you know, you have to almost be doubly as vigilant when it's your own party in power. It's a really good point. It's the, the example that the United States and the foreign, like on the world stage has to be, we have to be better than our enemies, right? Like when we go back to like the torture debates or some like when we talked back in December, you brought up how Trump was acquitting some of these people uh, who were convicted of murdering innocent civilians in other countries. Like it's not enough for us to say, well, look what the terrorists do. Like we have to be better than that. Sorry, sorry to take it such a dark, dark way, but it's like that same, like we have to hold, if we want to be better, we have to hold not only the other side to higher, to higher standards, we need to hold ourselves to higher standards. Last thing on Cuomo, he managed during the coronavirus, coronavirus crisis to come out with a book titled American Crisis, Lessons in Leadership. How ironic is that? Unbelievable. Probably going to be a bestseller. I mean, it already was, like, but one, it was, it was bad enough that he had time while he was managing this crisis to write a book, but lessons in leadership. All right. Well, uh, all right. Let's move on to another clown in, in American politics. Ted Cruz jetting off to Cancun in the middle of uh, his state being in absolute crisis from, from weather, for loss of power, loss uh, lack of food and water for millions of people in his state but he has time to take a little vacation with his family in Mexico. Man, I mean, where to even begin with, with Ted Cruz? I, I like, it's sometimes it's hard to, to have an original take on these things because it's like Twitter and all that stuff. They just come out with 
you know, come out guns blazing and um, so much stuff that I, I really enjoyed. They were, um, I mean, I think, I think for me, the thing that strikes me the most is just kind of like the, the irony here of an American like climate refugee trying to cross the border and going into Mexico for, uh, for some relief um, and to try and get away from harsh conditions and lack of food and water and power and sanitation and stuff. It's uh, I, I mean, it's, it's laughable except for that. It's, it's, I'm, I'm not sure. Also a little scary too. Yeah, I mean, just like the lack of like consciousness of like the things that he says and then, you know, literally what he's doing the next day. Right. It's it's someone that has no conscience. Like he just has no like internal guidance of what's right or wrong. Well, and I I might actually put Josh Hawley in the same category. I don't know enough about him to really put him. He seems to be that same type of person that will go wherever the wind blows just to be right and to gain power and, and further his own ambition. Uh, because honestly, what Ted Cruz did, in my opinion, isn't nearly as bad as what Andrew Cuomo did. Like Ted Cruz is just an idiot, but like it's when you when you look back at everything that he's said and done where it makes you be like, dude, what is going on? Like are you, you can't be, this is what we keep coming back to. He's one of the most educated people in the country, but he's just such an idiot. Like this guy was, he was the number two Republican presidential candidate in four years ago. What has happened to him in the last four years? Like it's, it's crazy. I, I will say maybe we should have known this because there were all those stories that came about back in 2016 of like from his college days at Yale. And then Lindsey Graham of all people actually he had a funny story that said if someone went onto the Senate floor and, and shot and killed Ted Cruz and then was uh, put on trial in the Senate, he would be convicted without a vote. <laughs> like he would be, he would be acquitted without a vote that like, ever, like none of like the senators wouldn't have been like, no one would vote to convict, uh, which is hilarious, kind of messed up, but hilarious. Yeah. I mean, and almost just like a, a very classic example of like a guy with like no principles very few people can even can find anything to any anything to endear them to him because you just have no idea where he stands on anything until he figures out what about a situation is like convenient for him um yeah it's uh it just it baffling right and it wasn't it wasn't hard for any news station to come up with a million clips of him ripping any log makers for like oh let's go home for christmas when he's like well we haven't passed the bill yet everyone should be working like obama like going out and golfing is he's always golfing he has time to play pool with his buddies in the middle of this and it's like come on dude like you can't say that stuff and then go do something far worse like and again it's really not like he was able to do his job he requested like federal aid like there wasn't I don't need Ted Cruz to be at a shelter handing out bottles of water to people. I think he probably should be, but whatever. Like, it's just the perception of it is, is just, it's baffling that someone that's been in politics for as long as he has, and it has the ambition that he does let this happen to him. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I guess I don't necessarily want to broaden this discussion, but I, I think it is a fair kind of juxtaposition that somebody like AOC who gets a lot of flack for, um, obviously whatever being a firebrand, but, but often politicizing a lot of issues or kind of calling people out on issues. I didn't see a ton from her in the way of like calling either politicians out or calling kind of Texas out and how they sort of run things. I think we'll talk about that in a minute, but I did see that she 
you know, raised a decent amount of money. She got there. She was on the ground. Um, and I, I, I think, I think that kind of, uh, leadership is notable. Like you, like you said, it, it's not maybe the best, you know, or most efficient use of her time or whatever to be somewhere handing out water bottles. But, you know, between that plus the raising money um, and then also just sort of saying like, all right, we have a crisis on our hand. People need help. Um, let's go help. And then we can, you know, figure out some things on the, on the back end. I thought that I was yeah. uh, pleasantly um, surprised because I think there were a lot of people who are looking for ways to take shots. And it was like, it's not, not the right time yet. <clears throat> oh, I, I agree with that. I would love to see more of that kind of like actual action from her. And that was great. And Beta O'Rourke, same thing was, was out there raising money and, and helping people. So yeah, you got to give credit to the politicians who are doing the right thing too. It's far easier to rip on the idiots. <laughs> yeah. All right. Last thing, last thing here. Uh, we talked a lot about Biden's cabinet picks when he announced them back in early December. We've gotten away from that because so much else has happened. Uh, so far, all of Biden's picks have sailed through uh, more or less. The closest vote was um, Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, who was through, I think, with uh, 57 votes, which is the, the smallest. Only he, I think he only got like six or seven, maybe 56, 43 or something like that. Someone didn't vote. Uh, but so Essentially, all Biden's main people have been have been put in place, which is certainly good for the administration getting things up and running during during this really challenging time. Uh, but it looks like we have we're going to have the first uh, person to to not get approved by yeah. by Congress, and, and that is Neera Tandon, who was um, Biden's nominee for the office of uh, the but the budget. Oh yeah, congrats, yeah, budget office. Yeah, it's called OMB. Uh, it's really in charge of. Um, oh, sorry, you're right. Yeah, yeah. The Office of Budget Management or Management Budget, something like that. Uh, I should know that, but is is in charge of really the wrong ones. really making sure the funds that Congress you know, approves in the budget actually get to the places. It's a really important job, and uh, it's a bipartisan job essentially. And we'll get to why that's important in a second, but a little background on, on Tandon. She would have been, or still could be the first woman, uh, the first woman of color to ever run that, uh, that agency. She, she's, uh, is, uh, born here actually in Massachusetts in Bedford, Massachusetts, which, which I didn't know, uh, but to Indian parents, she has worked for the center for American progress, which is this liberal advocacy organization for the last like 15 years, 17 years, has worked like longtime huge Democrat, worked for Dukakis and Clinton and Obama, and then worked, been very close with Hillary over the last uh, like eight, 12 years. Uh, the Office of Management and Budget is what she was uh, nominated for. But it looks like she's in trouble. Uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Susan Collins from Maine, Mitt Romney from Ohio, Rob Portman of uh, Mitt Romney from Utah, Portman from Ohio, Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, five of the most moderate senators in the chamber all have come out and said that they are not going to vote for her. So this will be Biden's first nominee. It looks like not to be approved. Do you have uh, any thoughts on any of that? Yeah. I mean, again, I think Manchin being the, the swing vote is kind of flexing his muscle here again, um, which, you know, I don't, I guess I don't know enough about her. What I have heard about sort of the reasons that, that folks are not interested in, in approving her um, or, 
you know, reasons that you wouldn't see even moderate Republicans kind of maybe swinging over is that she, she sort of has ripped a lot of people, um, uh, new, uh, you, you know, what, um, strength. yeah, since, uh, since her time as, uh, you know, assisting, um, Hillary Clinton in, in the, her 2016 run for, uh, run for the presidency. So, she didn't make any friends uh, of Republicans nor of progressive Democrats. And like, I, I, I don't, I think, you know, Biden, Biden promised unity and everyone's like, Hey, you're not going to get unity. If you not, if you get a person like this and he's like, Hey, look it, I got, I got left-wing progressives and I got right-wing conservatives. I got moderates. Everybody hates this lady. We're all yeah. together on this. What do you mean? Unity all day. <laughs> Wild. I don't know. Not that she's not, you know, incredibly accomplished and intelligent, but I have no idea what Biden was thinking. I guess the closest thing is apparently she's very close to Ron Klain, who's Biden's like right-hand man and chief of staff. So it seemed like a kind of a personal thing, but she, as you alluded to, has, she was very active on social media, particularly on Twitter and ripped for, for years, has ripped everyone from Bernie Sanders to Mitch McConnell. She went after Collins very hard uh, a couple of years ago. And in her question, in like her um, hearings, like all of the senators were coming after her for what she said. Like, like to go that hard after Bernie and that hard after Mitch, like, I don't know how you can get up there and be like, yeah, I should be in charge of the budget that you're going to pass. Uh, so I have no problem with her, her not being confirmed. Uh, yeah, I guess. Okay. I guess I, uh, I guess if, if I was going to play a little devil's advocate, it's, it's slightly, um, I don't know if disingenuous is the right word because it's it's not necessarily I, I probably wouldn't want to work with somebody who said things like that about me. But like Donald Trump said those kinds of things about pretty much every single Republican and they're like eventually they all came around to him, you know, so um, to say to say given. The ch- yeah, but Neera Tannen is no Donald Trump, you know, like it's there's, there's a certain level of person you can get away with certain stuff. She's not at that level. Uh but it also like the day before her confirmation hearing, she went back and deleted over a thousand of her old tweets. <laughs> it's like, like the purpose of the office management and budget and Colin said this in her statement is like full transparency of like where money's being spent. And for you to go the night before you're like, you're hearing and delete all of your old tweets is like, this is not a great look. Right. But and it is interesting. Like a 50 year old lady, now that we are in the age of social media and as people who are our age and younger start to get to these more national offices, it is really interesting how, the things that you say in the past, particularly on social media, are they don't go away. Yeah. And I and I and I and I guess just because of, you know, who who I am and mistakes that I probably made, I feel like, you know, yeah, ten, yeah. 10 years or so in the past. And I feel like you should you should let that go. But five years is is recent enough that everybody should know that this is how social media gets used and that anything that you say is fair game to be used against you as it as it kind of should be if you've shown really no like growth or or remorse or anything from that time and and i yeah it's like for for her to say that oh you know i'm i'm totally impartial now it's like i don't even know what that means (laughs) you said all kinds of crazy stuff Really? All right. So one other thing that you brought up that I do want to mention is that you said it really well. It's Manchin in a lot of ways flexing his muscle because he came out before even Collins or Romney or Portman and said, I'm not going to vote for her, which is essentially like scuttling 
the nomination. If, if they don't have his vote, they need one of their other Republican votes. I saw an interesting take, which is like, you know, what would be a true power play of like Murkowski going, being like, I'm going to vote for her. Like Biden, hey, come give me something. Come, come send some money to Alaska. I will vote for her. And there's, you know what I like though, is that it's, it's like a competition to rush to the center now. Because these cent- with a 50-50 split, each of these people who are truly in the center are, well, we've said this before, are really important. So it's it's kind of interesting to see people jockey over, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm going to scuttle this nomination versus I might vote for this nomination. I, I like it. Yeah. And, and hopefully it's not just a handful of people who want to use their sort of position as moderates or sort of uh, you know, people who might go one way or the other for leverage for other things like the the hope, you know, the ideal world is that people eventually start making decisions based on like the facts of the decisions to make. But it doesn't seem like we're there. That's fair. No, that would, that would be ideal. Um, a couple other Biden cabinet nominees that are coming up. Uh, Linda Thomas-Greenfield was just confirmed this week as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, Merrick Garland, most famous for not getting a hearing when he was nominated to the Supreme Court after Justice Scalia's death by President Obama, actually got his hearings this week. He is nominated to lead the Department of Justice. It looks incredibly likely that he will be confirmed as the the leader of the DOJ. Um, A couple ones coming up to keep an eye on. Um, Xavier Becerra, the California Attorney General who was nominated for the Health Secretary, his nomination looks a bit controversial. Uh, Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General nomination, looks a bit controversial. And Deb Holland, the Interior Secretary, her nomination also looks, you know, controversial. Uh, there was one tweet I saw that said after Holland's hearing, Manchin got in the elevator and Murkowski rushed in to join him, and it said, "We've got the whole power of the Senate right here in this elevator." I was like, "Ooh, interesting. That's fine." Yeah. All right, so those are just some other Biden cabinet members to keep an eye on. And I think that's it for our wrap up of the news. There are things that we wanted to talk about or felt like we could talk about in a relatively short time span uh, for this episode. As short as we can get. Yeah, that wasn't bad for us. All right, when we come back though, we will spend a longer amount of time diving into what's happened in Texas. Screw you, we're from Texas. Screw you. We're from Texas. Screw you. We're from Texas. We're from Texas, baby. So screw you. So as most people are probably aware from the news over the past week or 10 days, uh, Texas, in a number of southern states, but Texas in particular, has been hit particularly hard by uh, the polar vortex, and which has led to uh, crazy shifts in weather wildly different than what's normally expected this time of year in, in Texas. Uh, it got down to the single digits uh, Fahrenheit, which is like a 50 degree difference from what it normally is. It was down, I have a friend in Texas I was talking to today and she said it got down to three degrees by Dallas. And now it's back up to almost 70 uh, about you know 10 days later, which is great. But that influx of cold weather and snow and uh, really just unexpected weather led to a number of cascading problems in Texas, including uh, the lack of loss of power for millions of people, uh, rolling blackouts across the state, and subsequently a lack of water, a lack of food, uh, and unfortunately, 70, de- 70 plus deaths that, that I saw. So 
it's it's been really a, a devastating situation down there. And I alluded to this earlier in the episode, but one of the reasons that we've we're, we're late on recording this week is because you work in energy and this disaster has actually affected a lot of the work you've done. And so you've been working extra the last few days about that. So I have like big picture thoughts on it. And it's just crazy because this has to do with so many areas it has to do with uh, climate change and uh, capitalism and political decisions and uh, like real, real life, like people, life and death situations in energy. It's just so, there are so many topics here, but I'm really curious to hear from you, particularly with your expertise in energy, like what are your some what are some of your initial thoughts seeing the situation how it how it happened how it unfolded and now that you're still kind of dealing with the fallout from it what are what are your thoughts on the situation oh man i got um i got a lot of a lot of thoughts and and yeah so i am uh i do work in the energy industry and and primarily when something like this happens my work is to really try and try and understand uh what happened here uh because it was such a, um, I don't know if unique is the right word, because actually I, I learned that it is not exactly unique, um, but, you know, happens so infrequently that you get temperatures so low in Texas. And really what was the uh, sort of the, the catalyst of the catastrophe here is just that it was so cold for so long um, that, that, you know, what, what sort of unfolded unfolded. Um, but trying to understand that from an energy perspective, um, there are, are so many things and, and really like you start to, to follow the news and you start to see very quickly how people want to fit the narrative to fit sort of their political agenda. So um, on the Republican side, you know, very early on there was, well, it's, it's wind energy, the Green New Deal is ruining Texas, which I mean, I won't get into the fact that there is no Green New Deal right now, but, you know, that's on one side of things. And then on the other side, it was very much like deregulation is the problem here. Um, Texas is the wild, wild west. Um, trying to sort of piece it together. I did sort of, you know, when I taught, you know, when we shoot each other notes about um, about topics, I was like, you know, we don't have to get into the energy specifics because I will lose myself and a lot of other people in this conversation. But I think that this is a very interesting um, metaphor is not really the right word, but like a little microcosm of of capitalism in a way that I think, uh, you know, warrants some um, some introspection. All right. So. I agree. And I said, you said that like, Hey, I don't want to get too deep into it. And I said, I want you to get deep into it because I want to understand a little bit better. And it's rare for either of us to get something. So in our wheelhouse that we can actually comment on in somewhat of an expert way. So I'm excited to hear from you. Let me lay out my understanding of Texas's energy situation. And then you can uh, correct me where I'm wrong and fill in the gaps. So what I know about Texas energy situation is that it's the only state that operates its independent, its, uh, its own electric grid. And what essentially that means is that every other state uh, in the contiguous United States is attached to larger generators that go across, not generators, but like that go across electric grids that go across state lines. And so that in times of crisis, when they do happen, um, other states are able to send power 
if, if you have a, a serious outage in Maine or in Oregon or in Alabama, other states can send power to those states. Texas operates its complete, it's its own energy grid. So unfortunately, other states couldn't really help when the energy grid went down last week. And because Texas runs its own energy grid, it isn't subject to federal oversight, which can make suggestions about reform, but can't mandate reforms in the same way that the you know, federal government can when it's actually running federal power grids in across every other state. Um, and I guess like the only other things that I would say is the reason for that, as far as I understand it, is that it's really, it was a kind of pure capitalism reason where Texas lawmakers believe that if we can deregulate the power system that energy providers could compete with each other and fill the marketplace and ultimately lead to lower rates for their consumers. Uh, while that may or may not have happened over the past few years, ultimately it seems to have led to a situation like this. So we'll go from there. It's a, it's a great starting point. And honestly, uh, I wouldn't change a lot of what you said. So the, the big thing about Texas, um, why they can sort of uh, operate this independent electricity grid. And I should, I should note, which maybe hasn't gotten a ton of traction that it's not all of Texas. So like uh, a little a bit of El Paso and West of El Paso um, is actually tied into the, I believe it's the Southern power pool as well as um, Southern, some other parts of Northern Texas and um, the far Eastern parts of Texas are also kind of interconnected with some of their neighboring States. Um, but they're actually insulated a, a bit from the rest of Texas. And you're exactly right, um, largely because if there is a lot of state sales of power that crosses lines, so if you're selling power from Texas to Oklahoma, um, essentially that triggers a lot of uh federal oversight because it is interstate commerce at that point. Um, so that that's kind of a large part of the desire to sort of limit that transition transmission um, from Texas into and out of um, other states. <clears throat> um, the, the deregulation part of it is a slightly separate, um, slightly separate question. So there are actually a lot of uh, grids in the US that are considered deregulated. All that really means is that the people that own um, the wires that transmit the power are not the same people that own the generators that make the power. And the idea is um, I'm not going to ever buy one set of wires from one person to get into my house. And then if I get another rate, have somebody else build a set of wires like that, we all decided is wildly inefficient. So the wires are the wires, but I could have somebody make a windmill um, in one part of the state and, you know, want to sell that power and somebody else uh, make a natural gas plant, want to sell that power. And I, as the consumer in a deregulated state, have a little bit of choice as to who I buy that power from. It doesn't quite work like that, but in you know our, our very simplistic world, I think um, I think that that's probably the best way to think about it. And <clears throat> so, <laughs> deregulation in this instance um, is probably most to blame for um, why you may have heard some stories of consumers getting bills of like 
nine, 10, $15,000. Um, that's largely because in a deregulated market where utilities aren't regulated, meaning that the public utilities commission isn't setting the rates that they're selling you the power at, um, you can actually get market-based pricing, meaning that pricing is actually set at uh essentially a clearing price of the supply of electricity and the demand for electricity. And if you think about what happened in Texas is that there was a huge run on supply. We had um, a ton of natural gas plants fall offline. So the sort of the, the narrative about renewables being the big culprit here, I mean, they, they played a part for sure, but in general uh, natural gas is what gets counted on to, to essentially um, meet Texas's baseload plus some nuclear and some residual coal. And they are the ones that came up short because <clears throat> when it got so cold, um, one, there's, you know, some need for natural gas for home heating Two, Texas does just doesn't weatherize um, facilities because it rarely ever gets this cold and it never gets this cold for this long. Um, so even if it does get cold for like a day, you just don't need to like, all right, you deal with it for a day, but you don't deplete reserves, right? So natural gas, you you pump it out of the ground and you might store it somewhere. Um, in Texas, because you can pump it out of the ground year round, you really don't store a ton of it. So whatever you pump, you're selling that day. And so if it gets really cold, all right, you maybe deal with one day of kind of high prices and you're, but you're continuing to pump and it's fine. What happens after five days of cold is all of a sudden, the wells that you used to pump gas out of have frozen over and you can no longer get gas. You're all out of the gas that you pumped out. And then any supplemental gas that you might buy from someplace else is astronomically expensive. And so you had a ton of these power plants shut off and it sent these prices um, to, to insane levels to give people some context. Typically in Massachusetts, we pay about between 10 to 15 cents <clears throat> per kilowatt hour of electricity in Texas, they probably pay about three to four cents per kilowatt hour. Um, on these cold days, those prices had gone up just for the electrons. I won't get into their like other charges, but just for the electrons had gone up to $9 per KW, which means that like to scale your bill, we're talking about like a thousand times higher than what you would normally pay. So if you're normally paying like 150 bucks, that's how you get, um, well, sorry, that's maybe that math is not quite there, but, but you know what I'm saying? Like you're in, in a five day period, you may pay more than what you were expecting to pay for the next five years kind of deal. Um, so that, that, and again, this is a little, a little bit afraid of this because there's just so many um, kind of feedback loops that go into each other, like one after the other. But the reason that <clears throat> that this for me really fits kind of the push and pull between cons conservative thinking of um, no regulation, the market knows how to handle the problems as long as there's um, a, a way for us to decide what the supply is and what the demand is. If there's too much demand and the price is high, we'll get more supply and, and it's kind of vice versa. And that's how we'll deal with these issues. Um, but in, in 
situations where you have these like once in a generation type storms, who's going to plan for that? Well, so there's a lot, like you said, to touch on here, but I think the last thing you said, these once in a generation storms, unfortunately, are no longer once in a generation. And so what we're, whether we're talking about what's happening in Texas now, or certainly what's happened in California over the past few years, which a lot of people in Texas and across you know, the country pointed to California was a very different uh, power grid system. And they had rolling blackouts for weeks due to the wildfires that were happening in, in California. It, it appears, and this is where everything is really tied up in one and makes it very difficult to talk about. And certainly I can't even imagine trying to solve some of these problems where given climate change, like the polar vortex, I remember a few years ago when it hit, normally for, I don't know, for decades, as far as I know, the polar vortex stayed up in Canada. And I remember when it came down to Massachusetts a few years ago and how really brutally cold, and we are used to the cold, we're used to temperatures in the 20s and 30s. And I remember distinctly being like, wow, because of climate change, the, the polar vortex is being pushed down. And not only is it colder here in the Northern United States, but it's also far warmer in sections of Canada, which present its own set of problems for wildlife and, and other things up there. But now it seems so quickly that the polar vortex is down in Texas. Uh, and so like, it's it's one of those things where on the one hand, kind of like you said, it's, it's hard to blame a lot of the energy suppliers from Texas for not like winterizing their natural gas plants and their pipes and those sorts of things. On the other hand, like that, those are some of the things that we're going to have to start as a country and as individual states in a case like Texas, you, you can't say that this is a once in generation storm because I wouldn't be shocked if this happened in five years or next year. Yeah, yeah, certainly climate change. I think the biggest problem for people who make like capital intensive decisions, you know, trying to take into account what climate change is doing is that when we make decisions in the energy space, especially like a decision, and I'm not saying we as in I do this, but <laughs> in general, like if you're building a power plant, right, the way that you forecast the revenues for that power plant is by looking at historically, how did things go, right? Like if I'm going to make the power plant is already going to cost me hundreds of millions of dollars, maybe a billion dollars. If I'm going to spend an additional 5% or 10% of that to make sure that it's weatherized, I need to know that I'm going to recoup that investment on, you know, on sort of high winter prices or something like that. Right. So you'll see in the Northeast, like we, everybody does that. That's if you need to be available in the winter, you're going to do certain things. You're going to insulate pipes better. You're going to do a lot of other things in Texas where you've just never needed this to ask a market to do that even though they know that like in the future, these types of events may be more probable because of climate change. Like we know extreme weather events are going to be more and more likely. It's still very hard. It'd be like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Like wildfire proofing something in downtown Boston, you're probably just not going to do it. Now, obviously I'm being a little bit facetious because that doesn't maybe doesn't quite make sense, but you kind of get the point. It's like something that's never happened before or happened once in a hundred years in an open market that sort of rewards investment decisions based on what people are willing to pay for. 
um, you are not necessarily going to come out ahead. And, and this is kind of why I wanted to tie it back to um, tie back to the, the sort of the discussion about unfettered capitalism, right? Because you actually had Ted Cruz, who uh, for years has been sort of lauding the Texas market for like, you know, we pay low prices because we don't have we don't have this onerous government regulation and, and all that stuff, which in part, I mean, you know, Texas pays some of the lowest prices of electricity in the yeah. country, yeah. absent what happened. But a lot of other people's costs actually go into preventing or, uh, you know, preparing for disasters that Texas just doesn't pay for. Uh, because they don't necessarily have to. So here's the, like the, the grand question of a government, you know, like, is that, is that like, for me, that is government's role where individuals don't have an incentive to do something that actually benefits all people. We can actually, you know, you don't necessarily have to know how the power grid works, but you can expect that your government takes, you know, put some thought into it and, and take some precautionary measures and you are willing to pay a little bit towards that. Right. I don't know. Right. So it's not, perhaps I'm giving them too much credit, but it's not necessarily that Texas legislators didn't put any thought into it. They just valued the, the freedom, the free market and all the benefits that it brings in terms of cheaper prices and potentially more choice more than regulation from either the state or certainly the federal government. And in that sense, you kind of get what you pay for. Like you do pay cheaper prices the vast majority of the time, but you're also set up for a disaster like this, which you didn't expect it, but like, this is, this is, you kind of, you reap what you sow in that sense. Yeah. Well, and I guess, I think the thing that gets me about this situation is that it's always framed as a either or either we have no regulation, the government out of our way and we're doing whatever we want, or, you know, you know, the flip, the flip side is government regulation is onerous. And and it's, it's always framed to me as if somebody is, you know, making rules just for the sake of making rules. And, and, and that's not to say that we don't have regulations that are onerous or that don't actually get you the outcome that the regulation was intended to. I, I certainly don't mean to say that we should never relook at rules and we shouldn't eliminate rules that we don't have, but I've always had an issue with the fact that in so many areas, people think that that you can actually just solve problems with the free market. But we do have all of these examples. And I, you know, I think something like the power sector, which is now an absolute necessity, people can't live without power. We saw that in Texas. But all other areas like like health insurance, maybe where um, where individuals who aren't necessarily needing like health care at the time still can pay into a system that sort of protects everybody against, oh, I don't know, a pandemic per se. Yeah. So I think there are certainly people that after this are going to really want to rethink what's happening in Texas. And I think that's totally legitimate. I will say that on the other side, our guy, my guy, your guy, Rick Perry, former governor of Texas and the energy secretary under President Trump. I don't know if you saw his reaction this past week. I mean, I think he said some nonsensical stuff about renewables or and or like the market is working in the way that it should or something. Well, yeah, I, I'm not going to quote his his renewable 
bashing that he had because I don't believe in that. But he said, quote, Texans would be without electricity for longer than three days to keep the federal government out of their business. Try not to let whatever the crisis of the day is take your eye off having a resilient grid that keeps America safe personally, economically, and strategically. And so while you can sit there and totally disagree with that take, that's fine. I don't think necessarily that there are lots, I don't think that Texas after this disaster is necessarily going to change their system. And I think that's fine. I think if you, I'm fine with leaving it up to Texas. Texas wants to operate their their grid independently. That's the decision that they've made as citizens. And they made that decision because they're electing people that are choosing to take a hands-off approach to their electric system. If after this disaster, you decide that actually, I don't want that approach, then you can elect people to run on a different approach and want more regulation on systems like this. So a crisis like this doesn't happen again. But in that sense, I do feel like there is the, the accountability is held at the local level of when you elect people in the legislature, I think their views on Texas energy policy is now going to be really important. Yeah. And I, I guess I'm not going to totally argue with that take. I think, I think it is funny that I'm not sure if it was Rick Perry or if it was another Texas Senator and, or just politician who said something like something to the effect of like, our grandparents, I'm sure, would sacrifice themselves if it meant that, like, we could keep our economy running at the onset of of, of COVID. I, I, um, I, you know, I'm right. Sure. It was the Texas lieutenant governor? I don't know his name, but he All said right. that. It was ah, oh, yeah, that wasn't great. <laughs> right. Well, but but it, it is really like along the same vein that like sure, if we're all kind of going into this eyes wide open and we just decide, you know, not to buy car insurance and sort of see what happens here. I I think that, I think that there is some credence to that. I think my problem though, is that I'm not, I, I believe that, that governor Abbott was like, yo, Biden, I think I need a, I need you to declare a state of emergency and we need funds from FEMA to deal with this. Right. So it's, and it and and that happens time and time again that folks that are constantly bashing the federal government when all of a sudden like everything goes to hell in a handbasket it's like why is why is nobody yeah. down here helping us out and it's and 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 part of it is that like <clears throat> yes in Texas they've they have enjoyed um, very low sort of relatively low power prices they have tons of natural resources from wind to natural gas to oil to coal they have all of this there but you know there wasn't really a, an eye towards how do we plan for this and there wasn't an over reliance on how market forces can can help us cope with um with really anything that comes our way and and i don't you know personally i am actually a big fan of deregulation, but I understand that people in general don't understand how electricity markets work, right? So, so now you've given them a tool to potentially lower their costs, but they don't know the risks. And it's similarly to just like getting retail investors into the stock market that you could lose your shirt and you didn't even know that you signed up for that. Um, and that's, that's potentially where I have the problem in that if we don't, if the education's not there, then it's a false choice. It's, you know, you're giving people an opportunity to just get, um, just get hammered by people who, who just have, you know, it's an unfair advantage, right? One of the key tenets of uh, a free market is that you have um, 
not there's no asymmetry in information. Buyers and sellers kind of know the same thing. Um, and here, an issue like energy, you you just don't have that. And so it's it's that that those kinds of things are difficult for me um, to to hope that people can make the right choices because they're going to just be uninformed choices. Yeah, that's fair. I don't really disagree with much of what you said there. I will say that kind of echoing what I said previously was that hopefully now that this has become much more in the forefront of people's minds. And it's not like, I, I mean, if you and I are sitting here looking into all of these things, I have to imagine it's, you know, multiple times that in Texas, right, where people are going to be concerned about these issues and not only educating themselves more, but if you're someone that is interested in fixing a problem like this, maybe you decide to run for, you know, the state legislature or the regulatory board or whatever. And now we fix this problem if you think it exists through your election. So I, I do think there is a natural solution for this if people feel like it's a problem and want there to be a solution. Uh, I, I, I will say that when people like decry services or government in general and then ask for help from the government, that drives me insane. And so obviously Texas is like a state in our country and deserves the help from FEMA. It's not like they don't pitch into FEMA and whatever, but that, that hypocrisy bothers me. It's the same thing when people are like, let's abolish the police. And then there's like a robber at their house and they're like, please come help me. It's like, all right, well, like this is why you need them. Yeah. Uh, but I will say, and I've been reading a little bit, kind of going down a rabbit hole the last couple of weeks on just like secession in general, a uh, whole different topic. You, know, you can, you can, you're like, you can take, we can take that offline. Give me a like psychology exam. Uh, but it's always really interesting in situations like this because Texas of all places is the one that most frequently says, let's secede, let's just be our own country. We have all these natural resources. Our economy is one of the biggest in the world, just in our state. And then you see something like this happen and it's like, all right, you want, like, you want to secede? Like, let's see how that works out for you. Right. Right. It is, um, it, but it is one of those like mutual dependency things. And, well, I guess I guess if I would make one other point about the situation is that like, you know, Texas can get some help from uh, a California or well, California actually had some of its own issues during during this spell as well. Um, but, you know, because we are geographically so so large, but also demographically so large and diverse, like these are ways this is like core foundational strength of America. When, when certain areas are going through some tough times, we actually have so many other places that are, that are doing well, that we can, we can do that. We can spread the pain and we don't have to go through these types of things alone. And so, I don't know, there's, uh, it's, it's the beauty of the United States, right? When it's, especially when things get so divisive at times and people do, whether it's in up here in New England, we say that we can't possibly be in the same country as some of these states down South or in the Midwest or in the vice versa in the South uh, or Midwest. And it's the, the beauty is really does come from our strength and our strength comes from our unity type thing. I will say, if we're looking at a positive, you know, silver linings here potentially down the line is that like if i'm biden like we've talked about infrastructure for months i don't see anything on the near horizon but this should just be another example of look like all of these the infrastructure is such a big word but like when you break it down whether it's uh like power plants or pipes or drinking systems or bridges roads electrical grids like all of these things that were built decades if not like centuries ago in some in some cases like we everyone acknowledged as that 
they've needed upgrades for years. And particularly now with not only with climate change and how much that's that's wreaking havoc across the country. Like we said, whether it's, you know, the polar vortex in Texas or the, the wildfires in California or Iowa last year had their spot with like a, their bout with the tornadoes that happened out there. It's unfortunately like the hurricanes down in Florida and, and the Gulf Coast. Like, unfortunately, these events seem to be getting more common. And it, like there has to be an urgency to upgrade our system so that people are not dying because of weather. Yeah. Yeah, that is that is no doubt. Um, there's right when when you talk about dealing with climate change, there are sort of two two places that require major investments. One is adaptation, so it's dealing with the impacts that we know are coming or that are already here, really, and and we're really just getting the our first taste of them. And then there's mitigation. I I honestly, sadly enough, don't know enough about the the Green New Deal if to, to make a judgment on it either way. I guess I would make one point about, you know, you said you weren't going to talk about it, but, but it has been sort of circulating around that, that wind is potentially to blame here. And, and really that the green new deal would set us on a path for rolling blackouts all the time. I want to, I want to be clear that that's definitely not what, what happened in this situation. One, there are lots of places where windmills operate in sub-zero temperatures actually so it's it's a it's a problem of preparation a lack of investment in cold weatherization whether that was by you know whether that makes sense or not for texas i think we can we can have that discussion but i did want to be clear that it's not wind but that doesn't mean that we don't still have a long way to go with techno technological development because our best green resources are still intermittent um not related to what happened here, but still a fact that's true. <laughs> yeah. And while there were wind turbines that did freeze, they weren't at the level that like power plant, natural gas power plants no. froze. And even I was looking to see what the percentage breakdown was and wind power makes up 20% of Texas's energy, which is certainly sizable, but is it's it still pales in comparison that natural gas is 40%, coal still 20%. So uh, Texas, to its credit, has a very diverse uh, like at energy sources, which is generally great. But like you said at the very beginning of this, that the narratives, everyone wants it to fit their narratives of like, look, it's the wind turbines fault. And other people are like, well, if we had more wind turbines, this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> like it's, it's, yeah, there's just, there, there's a lot here. It's, it's when like all these issues um, kind of coincide into one disaster. And, that, and that's really what happened here. Yeah. 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 And I, I suspect we won't actually hear the last of it because there's quite a bit of financial implications because of Texas's kind of open market system um, that uh, some companies made a ton of money, some companies lost a ton of money. Um, and obviously residences are, are hurting <laughs> some, you know, from just from damage to their house because they lost power and things froze or opposite, they were able to keep power and now have astronomical um the billing rates to deal with. So I, I think uh, this won't be the last um, we'll hear about this. Yeah, and, and from a federal level, the, the U.S. government spent, I think, $22 billion in disaster relief last year after spending something like $3 billion in, in 2017. So it's, it's while we sometimes choke, and certainly me in particular, choke at some of these like price tags on these major projects, you don't, you kind of forget that like we're bleeding out every year, these billions of dollars in order in just to 
to deal with the after effects as a, being reactive as opposed to a, a, a infrastructure deal which incorporates a lot of aspects of, of green energy and, and um, dealing with climate change like that would be proactive in trying to prevent some of these situations, not only financially, but again, most importantly, through loss of life. Right. Right. I can't buy those back. All right, buddy. Uh, this was good. It was good. It was nice to get back to normal and, and just talk about some of these things with you. Yeah. Yeah. I swear one of these days we won't have too much on the current events and we can think about some of the broader topics, but. And if people out there, if you made it this far in the episode and you have ideas for broader topics, Ricky and I both do, sometimes we get bogged down in current events, but like we both loved doing the presidential draft. Like I said earlier, we got a lot of good feedback on it. So if people have, it doesn't have to be as kind of fun and like spontaneous as that, but um, just kind of like big picture issues to tackle. Uh, we would certainly love any feedback or ideas that people have. Absolutely. Until then, my friend. See you, buddy.
thousand miles from home With nothing in their bellies but the fire down below They died building the railroads, they worked the bones and skin They died in the fields and factories, names scattered in the wind They died in Kenya a hundred years ago, they're still dying now The hands that built the country were always trying to keep out There's diamonds in the sidewalk